We are finishing up our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Lord, teach us to pray, the disciples said, and Jesus gave them this model prayer. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It's also recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, the longer version. And so I'll be referencing the longer version. But you can go to Luke chapter 11 if you'd like to see the context. We're more familiar with Matthew's ending, which is the doxology to thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I will touch on that near the end of the sermon. But the way Luke has the prayer recorded, it to us seems like an odd way to end a prayer. And lead us not into temptation. Why would we have to ask God not to lead us into temptation? Why does Jesus end his prayer this way? It's so different from how you and I end our prayers. Let's be honest. We end our prayers um, usually asking for things. Which we said isn't a bad way to order your prayer. Right? The ACTS model of prayer. A-C-T-S. Adoration. Start by adoring God and praising his name. Confession, confess your sins, thanksgiving. Thank him for his forgiveness and his provision. And then supplication, a fancy word that means request or petition. Instead of jumping into prayer asking God to hit all the boxes on your wish list. We need to realign our thoughts with his thoughts before we begin to ask. May change our petitions if we start with adoration and confession and thanksgiving. But this is a strange petition on the surface. Lead us not into temptation. Why would we have to worry that God would lead us into temptation? And that's the, that's the short answer. He doesn't. In fact, all of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer are first and foremost affirmations of what is already true about God. Let's briefly go through the Lord's Prayer, and you'll see each petition is asking things that are already true about God. Hallowed be thy name. His name is holy. His name is holy. Your kingdom come. His kingdom is coming. It is here. We call it the already but not yet. Portions of it are here, but in the ultimate sense, he's always been reigning. He is sovereign. It's all his kingdom. It's just temporarily there's this other kingdom. The kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is being done on earth. Nothing thwarts God's will. His Decreed will from all time, before time began. But his moral will is often being violated. And you and I need look no further than ourselves to find a violator. And so when we pray, your will be done, we're simultaneously acknowledging that God's will is going to be done. But 
his moral will revealed to us in Scripture, I need to align my will to God's will. And we're not equal partners here. I need to submit my will to God's will. I need to submit my kingdom to his kingdom. He did tell Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth, but we're not to usurp or replace God's dominion. We have dominion, we co-reign with Christ, but Christ is the head of the church. And God's name is holy, will always be holy, will be holy whether anyone in this universe other than the Trinity treats it as holy. But we're also praying that we, you and I, first of all, treat his name as holy, and we want to see others treat his name as holy. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're affirming that it all comes from God. If God stopped providing for an instant, we'd all be gone. The universe would be gone. Life would cease to exist. And so, we're not asking God for something He's not already doing. And yet, specifically, we can also ask in specific ways that God provide us daily bread. And we said that bread may be actual food or other material needs. But more importantly, daily bread is His Word and Jesus Christ Himself in our life. He is the bread that always satisfies. When we pray, forgive us our sins, it's not that God is not forgiving sins. He loves to forgive sins. It's His joy to forgive sins. Jesus taught us in the parable of the prodigal son that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. More so than when 99 who don't need repenting, and that's tongue-in-cheek, don't need to repent. So God loves to forgive. He is forgiving. He's ready to forgive. But in a specific sense, we're also praying, Lord, forgive me today for these things that I have done, or these things that I have left undone. Chiefly that I have not loved you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And have not loved my neighbor as myself. And then we pray, lead us not to temptation. So following the pattern, we must assume, sticking with the pattern, that we're praying for something that is already true. That God would not lead us into temptation. And that is exactly the case. We're affirming that God would not lead us into temptation. Because we begin to think untrue thoughts about God. And that is where all of our problems stem from. Thinking untrue thoughts about God. G.K. Chesterton used to write that the most important Thing any human being can think is what is true about God. You get off the mark just a little bit from that starting point and all the rest falls apart. To know what is true about God, God must reveal to us what is true about Him. We cannot use our circumstances and our feelings 
to define God's character. We'll be tempted to define his character incorrectly. So my first point this morning is affirming a truth about God that the Bible clearly, clearly teaches. God does not tempt. He tests. God allows us to be tempted as part of a test or a trial. Here's where the confusion is. The word in the Greek for test, for trial, for temptation is all the same word, parasmos. So Jesus prays, lead us not into parasmos. Now, we wouldn't pray that God wouldn't lead us into trials. We need trials. We need trials. Say it with me. We need trials. So hard to say with conviction. <laughs> Like I need like another hole in my head, right? We need trials. But just like the student would never know if he really knew the material without the test, how do we know where our faith is? How do we know the condition of our soul if there's no test? I mean, we all would just love to attend class, hear the lecture, And go home, do we really need to write a paper and have it graded? Do we really need to take the math test? You don't know what you don't know until it's been revealed. And that's what tests reveal. God gives us tests to reveal to us where we need to change and grow. Or where we're doing well, which encourages us and strengthens our faith. And so as Matt Sheridan was saying this morning, it is wrong for us to say, hey, I'm good enough. I'm going to pass all the tests. I'm worthy to be in this position in the church or to have this ministry or to lead my family or whatever call God has placed on your life. There are qualifications, as we read. But if you think you're going to pass every test, you've already failed the most important test. The test of humility. You don't know yourself the way the Bible has revealed. Take heed lest ye fall. A haughty spirit goes before destruction. Of course you're going to fail a test. The answer or the question is, how will you respond to failure? And are you failing presumptuously knowing God's got it covered, nobody's perfect? That's the wrong attitude for sure. But just as wrong is the attitude of, if I fail a test, God no longer loves me. Or, I have no reason to believe I would fail a test. I'm that good. All these attitudes are wrong. I am weak, but God is strong. He will put trials in my life, and there are good purposes for those trials. 
And some trials I'll pass with flying colors and others I'll stumble. But God isn't done with me. I am forever His through faith in Jesus Christ. And the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is working in me. God does not tempt. James 1.13 clearly, clearly states, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Could you have a more clear passage in the Bible? Yet, in the midst of a trial, you will be tempted to doubt God's character and his love and his plan. This is the number one reason unbelievers give for their unbelief the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving, why then all this evil in the world? Why the trials? Why the temptations? Often people ask, why did God put that tree in the garden in the first place? That would have solved everything. Well, the wisdom of God surpasses our wisdom. But certainly it was not a temptation, it was a test. The devil turned it into a temptation. And what we do with the circumstance determines whether or not it's in our life a trial or a temptation. The word parasmos is morally neutral morally neutral it becomes morally negative when we make it a temptation it's a positive thing when it's a trial intended to grow our faith so when we pray lead us not into temptation there's no moral baggage attached to the word temptation. That's where we're confused. We're like, well, why would God lead me into temptation? He doesn't. He allows us into circumstances that test our faith that could become temptations only if we allow them to become temptations. So James continues to teach. That a temptation be... Uh, trial becomes a temptation when we're carried away and enticed by our own desire. I skipped a slide on you, Dave. But go back to God the Father allowed Jesus to be tempted by Satan. You need to be reminded of this. God the Father allowed God the Son to be tempted by Satan. Why? Why would he do that? What kind of father would do that? A loving father. Notice in Matthew 4, 1, how clear the Bible is that Jesus was led up by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be, for the purpose of, being tempted by the devil. The devil's doing the tempting. Even though God led Jesus, God the Son, into the wilderness to be tested, it was 
the devil doing the tempting, not God. Very important. Very important you understand that. The first man, Adam, failed the test in the garden and was banished into the wilderness. And the last man, Jesus Christ, or or the last Adam, as Paul calls him, passed the test in the wilderness to bring humanity full circle back to the garden, back to paradise. Isn't that beautiful? The first man failed the test in the best of all possible contexts. Perfect garden, perfect world, perfect relationship with God. Failed the test, banished from the garden. God puts a curse on the earth. The last man leaves the glory of heaven to come and become fully man without without stripping himself of his deity. Fully man, fully God. Because no man can pass the test. Only God can. Fully God, fully man, passes the test in the wilderness. So that those of us who are in Christ can return to the garden, as it were. Beautiful plan. So James says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. Don't think lust is sexual temptation only, although that is certainly one of the chief cravings. But any desire, any desire, any strong desire to violate the law of God, thinking it will bring satisfaction or pleasure. That is when a trial becomes a temptation. And when we give in to the desire, and he switches to this childbirth metaphor, then desire conceives and it gives birth to sin. So it starts with an idea and a craving in your heart, and then you act on that, and it becomes sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Or or when, when sin grows up to maturity, it brings forth death. Just as God said to Adam and Eve, on the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. And it was a test. Do you trust me? You don't need to come up with good and evil on your own. Trust me. I'll tell you what is good and what is evil. You don't even need to know what is evil. The only evil you need to know is not trusting me. You know, it's like you tell your kids, you don't want to watch that movie. Trust me, you don't want to watch that movie. And then what do they want to do? And then they're sorry they did. Because they've lost innocence now. Got, got those ideas and those thoughts. And I think one of the most foolish things I've ever done as an adult was click on one of those uh, somebody lost their head overseas. And I'm like, just how evil is evil? Why do I need to see that? Why do I need to see that? I know that's evil. 
and that has haunted me. And every once in a while in my dreams, that picture comes back. And for many of you, you, you had to see things that were evil, and you had no choice, and, and they haunt you. Those who've served overseas, or those who've served in the armed forces, or police officers, firemen, hospitals, you've, you've seen great evil. Those who counsel a lot, you see great evil in the form of rebellion and disobedience and hate. And you wish you had never seen it. And God had told Adam and Eve, you don't need to know what evil is. You know what good is. It's God. And the world you live in is good. What did God say? It is very good. Very good. After he created woman. After he created just man, he said it is not good for man to be alone. It's the only time he said something wasn't good in his creation. He created a helpmeet for man and he said creation is very good. And that should have been enough for Adam and Eve. And we've inherited that nature that says, well, that's not enough. I need more. I need to know more. I don't trust that God is giving me all the goods. I want to find out for myself. Right? That's the way your children are. I need to go find out for myself. Really? Not all lessons have to be learned that way. You could just trust. Oh, I guess we're doing it the hard way. And it's the way you learned and you want different for your children, but they're descendants of Adam and Eve as well. They're descendants of Adam and Eve. And well, they have a fallen nature, and so you pray for your children and you lead them to the Lord and you saturate them with the Scriptures. But there's no guarantees that they're not going to want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil themselves. Of course they're going to. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice Satan started the temptation with attacking God's word, the veracity of God's word. Did God really say... No, that's not what he said. No, that's what he said. He said, on the day we eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, we shall surely die. So Satan moved on to a slightly different form of the temptation. You won't surely die in the way you think God meant you would die. You will simply die to ignorance, which is a good thing, right? Who wants to be ignorant? You'll become more like God. You'll have your eyes opened. And you'll know good and evil for yourself. Ah, then I won't have to ask God what is good and evil, what is true and what is right. Being like God is a good thing in the sense that we want to be Christ-like. Being like God is a bad thing in the sense that I don't need God anymore because I'm God now. It's a fine line, but... A huge, important line. And Satan tempts more subtly. The obvious temptations we can walk away from. Although sometimes we don't even walk away from those. But it's the stuff that looks good. 
And given the right context, we are weak enough to convince ourselves of just about anything. Isn't that true? Have you not experienced that in your life? You could convince yourself of just about anything, including when all of your friends who love you are telling you you are headed in the wrong direction, that is a slippery slope, bad idea. Well, you guys don't know, you don't understand, you don't love me, you don't want me to have this good thing in my life. We pray, lead us not into temptation, because we need to be reminded that God fully understands our weakness and understands our struggles with temptation. That's my second point. God can sympathize with our struggles through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's an important distinction. And yet this verse ought to bring you great hope and confidence and encouragement. God understands how hard it is. He's been tempted in every respect yet without sin. And so for Jesus, it never moved past being a trial because he passed the test. Satan meant it as a temptation, but Jesus stood firm on the word of God, submitted to the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit the way we're supposed to. And so it gives us great encouragement that our salvation is rooted and grounded in Christ's obedience, not ours. Wow. Somebody took the test for me. And I know he passed. That's what the resurrection signifies. He passed the test. And Philippians tells us that he is given the name that is above every name. And one day every Knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is God. He passed the test. And yet at the same time, isn't like one of those know-it-alls at school who was like, I can't believe you didn't pass the test. Come on, people, wasn't that hard? Hate that guy. Okay, that guy was me often. But I've repented. Because you just keep getting more tests until finally... You fail. Because there's always someone smarter. And you find out the academic tests aren't the important ones anyways. I know school's starting in a few weeks. Scrub that from the record. The parents are like, no, don't say that. No, there's more important tests. A character. Those tests, I fail constantly. But I'm so thankful that My salvation isn't based on me passing the test. It's based on my faith in the one who has passed the test on my behalf. And at the same time, that doesn't give me license to go around failing tests. Well, I'm in. So, when in Rome, when in Babylon, 
I say, when in Babylon, live like Daniel, not like the Babylonians. But it's hard to live like Daniel. And so this verse gives me confidence that God knows how difficult it is to live in Babylon. That it's not easy. And for those with a humble heart, throw yourself the mercy of God. We can be sure that he understands how hard it is, but that he won't put us in any situation that by his help we couldn't pass the test. That's what this next verse teaches us. Point number three, in Christ we have confidence that we can pass the test. Not the ultimate test to get us into heaven, Christ did that for us, but the daily tests God puts into our lives. It's one of my favorite verses for counseling. In fact, all these are. Because this is where the rubber meets the road in sanctification. Folks, this is where people really struggle with life, is when life gets hard. And you become convinced that my life is so hard that nobody understands. Nobody's going through what I'm going through. Nobody has it this hard. My circumstances are so unique that the Bible doesn't have anything to say to me. And you get into that cycle of depression where the only thing that sounds good to you is for people to pat you on your back and say, you're right. You do have the worst life on the planet. All I have for you is pity. And I'm glad I'm not you. But that is the last thing we need to hear. It's what our flesh wants to hear. But come on, people, in a moment of sobriety right now, hopefully you're not in the throes of depression and you're able to listen and you're not mired in self-pity right now and you can hear my voice and you can hear the Word of God. Is that really what would bring you satisfaction is to know you're the only one in the history of the world who's had this problem? Who's going to counsel you? Who's going to help you? It's this perverse joy we get out of self-pity that I will always be this way. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. I know we all crave to be special, but people, you don't want to be special in this way. It is a prison cell. Self-pity. And the Bible tells us quite the opposite in no uncertain terms. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You should have this page in your Bible marked and dog-eared and able to find it quickly because God is going to put you in situations where you are being tested and you need this verse. And he's going to put you in situations where people you love need to hear this verse. And you need to be like not... Where is that that verse? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. We don't talk that way anymore. So it's a difficult verse to memorize and grasp. It's basically saying, look, there's nothing you're struggling with that someone else hasn't struggled with before. Nothing new under the sun. Oh, oh, sure, the, the little particulars and, and the flavor and the color and the circumstances 
are all unique, but the categories are all the same. The, the desires and the lusts are all the same. In fact, the Bible kind of boils it down to three categories. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Lust of the eyes is just flat out, I saw it, I wanted it. What, didn't even really think about it. Just look good. Lust of the flesh, a little more thought involved. You're thinking about what this thing would do for me, the happiness it would bring, the joy it would bring, how it would resolve all of my problems. And then the pride of life, those things that tempt us, hey, look at me. All eyes on me, the attention's on, on me. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. No temptation has overtaken you but such as common to man. That's good news. I mean, it's bad news that we're all so weak. Good news that we're all in this together. The context of 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul going back over Israel's history in the wilderness and chronicling some of their sins. And then he says, all of these were given as an example for us. God so ordained Israel's history, not just for Israel's sake and for the people who were living at the time, and not just to bring the kingdom into the world, and not just to bring the king into the world. He's doing all those things. But one other thing God is doing through redemptive history is giving examples for people down the road to look back at and go, oh, them too. How did they handle it? Here's where they handled it poorly. Here's where they handled it well. Here were the consequences to handling it poorly. Here's the consequences and blessings to handling it well. Here's what to do when you fall. And to repent and confess your sin and receive God's forgiveness and make the change. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That is good news. Now, sometimes in the midst of the trial, you're tempted to doubt this part of the verse. Sure feels like I am being tempted beyond what I am able. Oh, it is beyond what you're able by yourself. That's where we go wrong. We try to handle it on our own. We don't go to God. We don't humble ourselves. We don't ask for help for people. And when we do ask for help, we ask for a specific kind of help that may not be help at all. If you love me, you'll do this for me to help me. That won't help you. I think that'll make it worse. We can really become a mess to use a highly theological term, in the midst of trials. Our thinking just goes all over the map. We need the wisdom of God and we need our friends in the faith who love us and will speak truth and love to us to offer correction and help us see the blind spots that we can't see for ourselves. 
And God says he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. For those of us in Christ Jesus, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power working in us to sanctify us, to say no to temptation, to say no to doubting God's goodness, to say no to doubting his plan. It's okay to have honest questions. God, this is so hard. I don't understand. Isn't there a less painful way to accomplish your will? Jesus said that to the Father. If there's any other way to accomplish this, let this cup pass from me. But thy will be done. But thy will be done because I trust in your goodness and in your perfect plan. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. Often people see this verse and all they see is the word escape. And they're looking for the escape hatch. Any escape hatch. Even if the escape hatch is a different sin. And I always point out the definite article. The way of escape. There's only one way of escape. Do you want to know the way of escape? Yes. Right? You want to know the way of escape. Keep reading. So that you'll be able to endure it. Huh? I thought we were escaping the trial. I have to endure it? That's the way of escape. The way of escape, then, he says, Therefore, my beloved, is flee from Idolatry. The way of escape is to flee from idolatry and endure the trial. Okay? If, if it's out and out sin, yes, flee sexual immorality. Flee lust. Flee pride. We're, there's things that we're supposed to flee. We're talking about trials God has put you in. And to keep the trial from turning into a temptation, a sinful temptation, you need to flee idolatry. What is idolatry? Trusting in another God. Worshipping another God. Idolatry is worshipping false gods. But we know there's no such thing as other gods. So how do we worship false gods? They're gods of our own making. And since they're not real, that means we're the false god. That's how you flee temptation is don't play God. Don't replace God's word with your own words. Don't replace God's truth with your own truth. Don't replace God's wisdom with your own wisdom. That's the temptation the devil is going to use. Don't trust God, trust yourself. Look what we heard this morning that Matt brought to our attention. You are good enough. You are strong enough. Your shoulders are broad enough. God was looking around and said, now there's someone impressive that's what the world tells us it's the power of positive thinking that's the self-esteem the selfish steam movement I am not strong enough I am not good enough on my own Christ working in me is strong enough and he is good enough he is sufficient When we choose to give into temptation, we are saying, I know better than God. 
Therefore, God tests us by allowing us to be tempted. He tests us by allowing us to be tempted. I need to know in my life where I have idols. And I tell you, there's idols that, uh, like when Dagon got knocked down, I stand back up. And so, a certain idol, I feel like I've finally overcome it in my life, and then God puts me in a slightly different circumstance, and I see the same idol was there. He's just hiding. And we need to know these things. So we know where to repent, where to change, course. Sometimes we pass the test, and that's good too. It strengthens our faith. I'm glad... I mean, can you imagine going to school and like every test you fail? So some people are like, imagine. It's my, it's my life. But if you've gotten caught into a pattern where you think, I fail every test of life. Woe is me. I'm, I'm just a worm, a dead dog. Well, you are, and I am too. But sometimes that's not authentic humility. That's self-pity talking again. And it becomes an excuse for failing. I'll never do anything right. Oh, so you're not going to try. I get it. And the opposite side of the pendulum's just as bad. I pass every test. Except the test of humility, apparently. We need to have this honest biblical view of who we are. Without Christ, we're going to fail every test. In Christ, because he passed the most important test for us, and we know nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, I can have confidence in meeting the tests God has laid out for me each day. And the ones that I don't pass with flying colors, there's grace. There's grace to retake the test. Maybe not in the exact way the the first test came, right? No do-overs. That's not healthy either, sitting around wishing I could have a do-over. But like Paul, we say we what? We put the past behind us and we press on towards the call of the, towards the prize of the upward call. You stop dwelling on the past. Learn from your mistakes in the past, but don't get stuck in You know, that's not fair. Give me another chance to be perfect. (laughs) Own up to your mistakes. Own up to your sin. Confess your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, how can we succeed where Adam failed? Sorry, son. The first Adam. Look at the way Jesus endured temptation in the wilderness. First of all, Jesus depended on the word of God as truth, not his own feelings or ideas to combat Satan's lies. You you go to the word of God. He was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days in his humanity. He was weak. And Satan tempted him to turn... Stones into bread, and Jesus said, it it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but 
from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're having a conversation with one of our own children that the feelings, the the right desires aren't always there before the obedience. Boy, life would be easy if that were the case. And that's where we're headed. Heaven, where all of our desires are the right desires. But Paul clearly teaches us in Romans 7 that there's our good desires and there's our desires of the flesh and they're at war with each other. We call that sanctification. And day by day, we're getting better at listening to the right desires and saying no to the wrong desires. But those emotions that on some days make it seem impossible to do the right thing, we don't listen to our emotions, right? Otherwise, Jesus would have said, I am turning these rocks into bread. That 40 days, long enough. And it's going to be good bread, like artisan, you know, the good stuff. No, no wonder bread. And, we, and we're telling our child that the feelings you trust will come later after the obedience. Always feels good to obey God. Maybe not right in the moment, but we trust those feelings will come. Don't base truth off of your feelings and your emotions at the time. They're good. They're from God. But they're tainted by sin. And the Word of God is not tainted by sin. It is pure. So we can trust the Word of God. So you need to be saturated in the Word of God. Especially on those mornings when the last thing you feel like doing is what? Reading God's Word. You can admit it. There's those mornings. We all have them. Even the pastor. I don't even know where to open. And I certainly don't feel like studying. So I'll just read a few verses like that will magically sanctify me. That day more than any other day is the day you need to trust God and not your feelings. Because you are vulnerable that day to temptation. You are vulnerable to temptation. I start wallowing in self-pity and I'll go to my friend's who have permission to speak truth in my life, or my wife, and they'll say, well, you know God's Word. I don't want to know what God's Word says. I know what it says. I preach it every Sunday, and I counsel it. I, I want something else today. And, yeah, this is, hopefully, that brings you some spot of encouragement. I have those days, too. They say, no, you need to hear God's Word. Because if I'm not listening to God's word in those moments when I'm weakest, I will listen to something else. And it won't be truth. Secondly, we need to never doubt, because it's what Jesus did. He never doubted God the Father's love and goodness. Never doubted. Now, we have doubts, but you don't, you don't give in to the temptation. You go, no, wait a minute. What do I know is true about God? He's good. He loves me. He wants what's good for me. He died for me. Why would he die for me and then go, eh, never mind. I'm just... I mean, what a waste to waste the blood of Christ if he's going to abandon us or trick us 
And so Satan tempted Jesus, you know, hey, go up to this tower and jump off and we'll see if he really loves you. Right? And you do that too and so do I. You know, God, if you really love me, you take this, this thing away from me that's bringing me all this pain. Put, put God to the test. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Even though once God allowed Gideon, well, twice, to put him to the test. But God said, go ahead, test me. In general, we're not to put God to the test. If you really loved me, you would do what I want. Make my life easy. No growth happens with the easy life. Nothing eternal comes from easiness. Thirdly, Jesus never placed himself above the Father by putting him to the test. He never placed himself above, above the Father. So, it's two sides of the same coin. It's, do you really love me? Because if you really loved me, you would do things this way. But the other side of the coin is, if you were really God, you would do things this way. This is the right way to do things. This is the good way to do things. And Satan tempted Jesus by saying, hey, look, if you bow the knee to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Well, wait a minute. They're not all mine if I'm bowing the knee to you. But the truth was that God the Father, the Trinity, had already come up with the plan before the foundations of the world that all authority on heaven and earth would be given to Jesus, but only through the cross, not bypassing the cross. And so Jesus didn't say, you know what? I see a better plan to accomplish the same goals. We'll bypass the pain and suffering. But the glory came through the suffering. So that's our example. So then what does uh, this final petition mean for us then? Like all the other petitions, we're just affirming truth about God's character. He does not lead us into temptation. He loves us. He does allow us to be tested for our own good and sanctification. And he will deliver us from evil. Really, if you look at the grammar there, have you ever heard the Lord's Prayer said this way and delivers from the evil one? The, the grammar there, it really looks like a demonstrative pronoun. You know, it, it's the evil one, not evil in general, which makes more sense because there's lots of evil in a fallen world and it happens to us all the time. So if we're constantly praying, deliver us from evil and evil happens to you, how are you going to feel about God's character and his love for you. Evil's going to happen to us. You're going to commit evil, unfortunately. I'm going to commit evil. We can't escape evil until we get to heaven. But we can be sure that God will deliver us from the evil one, from the schemes of the devil, from the lies of the devil. And in the ultimate salvific sense, we know that through faith in Christ, he'll deliver us from the evil, the penalty for our our sins. So again, we're affirming what is already true. You don't have to be afraid of Satan, though he's terrible. 
God is more powerful. The one working in you is more powerful than the one working in the world. And then Matthew ends the Lord's Prayer. I should say Jesus ends the Lord's Prayer in the way Matthew recorded it with this doxology. Now don't get nervous here, but some translations don't include the doxology or it puts it in parentheses. Why? Because some of the older manuscripts don't have the doxology and some do. But there's nothing in the doxology that is controversial at all. And I recommend closing your prayer, coming full circle where you started, and affirming glorious truths about God and his kingdom and his glory. So the doxology is a great ending. To thine be the kingdom, because it is his kingdom. To thine be the power, because all power comes from God. And to thine be the glory, because it's all about his glory forever and ever. It's what we're about for eternity. It's what we're made for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so there's the Lord's Prayer. I hope this series has informed your prayer life and encouraged you to pray more and maybe even changed up the way that you pray the way the Lord's taught us to pray. And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed holy is your name. We want to see it made holy in our lives and in our world. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We affirm that you give us our daily bread, everything we need for life and godliness. And we affirm that you forgive sinners through faith in Christ. Teach us to forgive others and to ask others to forgive us. And we know you will not lead us into temptation. Help us to flee temptation by fleeing idolatry. Deliver us from the evil one. And indeed, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.